This is Wrestling Nostalgia with Dave Dynasty. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wrestling Nostalgia. I am your host, Dave Dynasty. Thank you for joining us, and we have a great, great episode uh, for you this week. Uh, I am being joined once again by our friend Richard Vicek, the author of the Bruiser Biography. And uh, he's come back on to continue on our History of the WWA series. And on this episode, we will be covering 1970 to 1973. And I mentioned it uh, as we start off the talk with me and Richard. But if you go back in the archives to episode 70 of the podcast, uh, you can listen to part one, which covered the history of the WWA from 1964 in the the inception to 1969. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, Catch up on that part. And then here you go. Jump in today on this episode and listen to 1970 to 1973. Uh, This will be an ongoing series uh, that will, will carry on. Uh, until we cover the complete history of the WWA. Uh, and uh, it's a fun thing. Uh, one of my uh, projects from the get-go uh, that I've always wanted to do and that, uh, you know, I, and I decided it was time to pick back up. And thank you to Richard for joining me uh, for that discussion today. Uh, lots of great stuff. I think you guys will love it. I don't have a lot here at the top. I've decided to to drop my thing where I go through all these dates and things because I think it's kind of dry and boring. I don't think anybody tunes in to listen to that. Uh, but if you want to see those things and 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 know those things, uh, you need to follow me on social media because I will continue to post those things there. Uh, important title changes, birthdays, uh, wrestling events, different things like that. I'm going to save all that kind of content uh, exclusively on all my social media platforms. Uh, so make sure you follow us on those. Uh, you can follow the podcast itself on X, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just look up Rassle Nostalgia. That's R-A-S-S-L-E, Nostalgia, all one word. Or you can follow me personally on X at the Dave Dynasty. And if you follow those, uh, you will see all that content, uh, the historical dates and stuff that I, I was rambling on through here. And I just thought, ah, I thought it was kind of boring content. So I'm moving it all strictly to social media. So thank you for that. Um, but that's all I got, right? There's nothing really for me that I want to key on or touch on prior to this. I'm excited for you to hear this talk with me and Richard. I'm excited to dive into the history of the WWA, as you all know, my favorite uh, area to talk about. Uh, So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll be joined by Richard, and we'll get right into it. If you like horror movies, be sure to check out Dave Dynasty and Ike Isaacs on the Listen to Their Screams Horror Podcast. It is available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Listen to Screams. That is Listen, the number two in Screams. All right, and we're back on Wrestling Nostalgia, and I'm being joined by Richard Vicek. And if you guys remember back in the archives, way back in episode 70, Richard joined me, and uh, we did an episode on the history of the WWA from 1964 to 1969. And on this episode, we're picking up where that left off, and we're doing a history of the WWA from 1970 to 1973. But first of all, Richard, how are you doing? Hey, very good. It's great to be here. And I always like sharing the history of the WWA. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you yeah, know, hey, but, I'm sorry, ahead. before we dive into 1970, um, why don't you, Richard, just recap a little bit that kind of that 64 to 69, the start of the WWA, sure. get, just for anybody that needs to be brought back up to speed. Uh, why don't you kind of recap for them? Sure. Well, Dick the Bruiser, William Franklin Atlas, and Wilbur Snyder, were wrestle were wrestling in all over the country from the mid 1950s to 1963. 
Their paths crossed many times, especially in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Detroit. And in 1964, they decided to start their own promotion against the established promoter, Jim Barnett. So with the help of Bruiser's high school classmate, Chuck Marlowe, on Channel 4 TV, that's where their television ran. And they used the North Side and South Side Armories and sometimes the Fairgrounds Coliseum. And throughout the 60s, that promotion steadily grew and prospered. And during that time, too, Snyder and Bruiser entered into an arrangement with Vern Gagne to co-promote the International Amphitheater in Chicago with the help of Robert Arden Luce, also known as promoter Bob Luce fans. Yeah, there, that's, there's often that misnomer that uh, that Bruiser and Snyder bought the territory from Barnett, and they did not. They yeah. uh, they, they went opposition and essentially kind of took over and ran Barnett out. Well, some of the some of the direct evidence to that, I only really realized that from looking at microfilm. Yeah. Where they were scheduling for at least August and September of 1964. Both of them put on shows Yep. in the, yeah, the same six-week period or so, and I learned the whole story in research for the Bruiser book, talking to William Estes, a Texas attorney, the son of Bach, who gave me the whole lowdown on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just saying there's – I mean, obviously, because the – the WWA is one of those territories that there hadn't been near as much research and material out there. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's just, I guess just people just assume there was the lineage there, mm-hmm. but, and, but now in this day and age, it's, it's so much easier to, you know, to, to go through the newspaper archives and see all this stuff. And like you said, you, you know, you talked to virtually everybody uh, associated with the territory that was still alive when you mm-hmm. did your book. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that was kind of, I mean, that's really, I, to my knowledge, you were the first person to really dive that deep and talk to that many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, I remember one of your guests on your show, Mike Snyder, mm-hmm. you know, filled me in on a lot of that. You know, he I think he used the term Bruiser and Snyder built a better mousetrap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, with Dick the Bruiser on top and Snyder on top, I mean, there was no real. I mean, why do they need Barnett? I mean, honestly, no. they just mm-hmm. they could just do what they want. I mean, they were. They were huge stars at that time, coming out of the 50s. So Yes. And All that, right. No, so go ahead. Anyway, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and recite matches, you know, or cards and stuff, but I'm just going to sort of talk, who were the major players during these years? Yeah. And that kind of thing. For instance, the big arrival in late 1969 was a former University of Nebraska wrestler and an AWA trained wrestler named James Rashke. In real life, Rashke was a quiet and shy guy, but he developed into a memorable character. I remember the story Mad Dog Bashan said to him, Hey, you'd be a good German. And he says, (laughs) I am German. (laughs) 
Anyway, he became known as Baron von Raschke, the German master of the Iron Claw. And he really took this territory by storm. And, of course, he feuded with Wilbur and then Dick before winning the WWA title and holding it for over 18 months. That's a similar uh, situation several years before that with Black Jack Lanza. Mm -hmm. So that says how much Bruiser and Snyder had faith in Rashke to, to portray that role and be a, a believable villain. Yeah. You know? And, of course, who was his manager during most of those times? Well, uh, of course, I mean, you're, you know, the one and only, the, the greatest of all time. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, what a combination there. <laughs> yeah, Bobby Heenan. So, and then, so then as 1970 and 71 rolled in, you know, there was always in the WWA a, a new string, a new group of wrestlers that would come in, you know, because after a year, 18 months, you know, people got tired of the same matchups. And during this period, a lot of these wrestlers came from the Detroit territory of the Sheik, but they had WDA had Louis Martinez, who then used an Apache Indian gimmick, Apache Louis. Uh, there was the the fabulous Kangaroos, the version that consisted of Al Costello and Don Kent, and managed by crybaby George Cannon. The mighty Igor came on board, managed by Ivan Kalmakov, and they would do those fits of feats of strength type things before matches. Yeah. But I never figure out how they would take the cinder block, put it on, put a towel on Igor's head, a cinder block, and Ivan smashes it with a <laughs> sledgehammer. <laughs> I have no idea, but anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Hans Schmidt came in as a partner with the Baron. Wrestling veteran Doug Gilbert came in under a mask called The Professor. And there was even a short visit, again, from Don Fargo. This time, he brought his younger brother, Johnny Fargo, who we would all later know as Greg the Hammer Valentine. Mm -hmm. Another uh, significant player in those years was Paul Christie, who finally uh, achieved main event status. In fact, he won the WWA tag title with Wilbur during those years. So that new talent always helped to spice things up and create storylines, you know, that kept interest. Yeah, you know, Bruiser, people always knock Bruiser and say that he, oh, he always booked himself strong, always booked himself on the top. And if people really looked, that's not really – I mean, yeah, he was strong, but Bruiser knew the, the value in the chase. And uh, yeah. he, he always had – you know, he he always had these top heels, you know, like you mentioned, that you know, Black Jack Lanza, and then Black Jack uh, – or excuse me, Baron Von Raschke, and, and then others on. He he knew the, the where the money was and dropping the belt and chasing it back mm -hmm. and how – you know, the big match to get it back and, and how to, you know, milk a feud with a, a heel for several months, several shows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so – well, yeah, you can look at it on paper at all. He held the title 
however many times. Yeah, but that means he was dropping it too. He knew. Yes. You know, he he knew the value, in in that that baby face bruiser chasing the the, the big heel. Mm-hmm. For sure. The, a big development in 1971. Well, Chuck Marlowe became too busy with his wrestling duties. You know, he did the sports on the 11 o'clock news on Channel 4. Yeah. He worked Indiana University basketball mm-hmm. on television. Uh, he was always, I remember as a kid, listening to the Indy, Indianapolis 500 radio broadcasts. And he would, be, he would be one of the, they'd have four reporters around a track, whatever, turn two or turn number four. He was always on that. And I was like, the first time I heard that, I said, oh, wow, that's Chuck Marlowe. <laughs> you know, because uh, a lot of, well, you could listen on radio in real time, but then there'd be an edited tape later that night with the actual on television. Yeah. But anyway, Marlowe was replaced by Sam Menneker, who had prior experience with both Bruiser and Snyder. Sam was the TV announcer in Windsor, Ontario in 1959, when Bruiser's career took off in Detroit. And Sam was a, a promoter in El Paso, Texas, in the in 1954, who brought in a young California sensation, Wilbur Snyder. So both of them had positive experiences with Sam, and of course he called and he called the television bouts, conducted the fake locker room interviews, <laughs> anyway, uh, and did he did various office duties for the company. You know, like manage spot shows, collect money, and that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes they'd put him in a referee, and he had a great feud with Bobby Heenan um, several times. You know, Chicago, Fort Wayne, and it was a perfectly executed rivalry, I thought. Yeah, yeah, Sam was, like you said, Sam was prominent and a very important part up, up to the, you know, right, the early 80s, the very early 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. Was I mean he was the, the the face. I mean he was the guy you saw on TV, uh, you know, calling everything, doing the ringside interviews, everything, the, you know, the locker room, like you said. And uh, but yeah, he was a I mean a very prominent figure uh, with the WWE during the 70s. Yeah. And uh, also that year, the, in the world of tag teams, this was the biggest development in the entire history of the WWA, in my unhumble opinion. This is when the team of Bob Windham and Jack Lanzo were brought together. And that's Black Jack Lanza and Black Jack Mulligan. You know, Mulligan was a former New York Jet football player, a former ref referee in the AWA, and he was a challenger to Pedro Morales for the WWF championship. In fact, he was stabbed by a fan in the Boston Uh Garden before a match. I mean, it was like scores of stitches. I understand it was like a horrible incident. And, of course, John Lanzo, 
became the first cowboy Jack Lanza, but switched to Black Jack Lanza in the late 60s in the WWE, managed by Enon, and served as a pretty long-standing WWE champion. Well, they were brought brought together by Bruiser and Snyder, and they, they became one of the top teams ever in the WWE. They were big, mean, charismatic, and rough. And, of course, they had the big feuds with the Bruiser and Crusher. I remember a lot of the TV interviews. Heenan would stand and talk, you know, Meneker would put the microphone in front of him, and Lanza and Mulligan would just stand there with their 10-gallon hats, their big mustaches, their vests, sneering at the camera while Heenan worked the crowd. So that was, and of course, they feuded in the Indie Expo Center, which, by the way, I mentioned the Expo Center, but that eventually became the home of the WWE in 1972, where those cards had both TV squash matches, you know, in a 9,000-seat arena and uh, not non-TV main events, or they had main events where time ran out. (laughs) You know, right when Crusher was going to get his hands on Heenan, Heenan (laughs) flips over to the ropes to the floor, and Sam told us, oh, I'm sorry, fans. See you next week on (laughs) All-Star Championship Wrestling. They had, Of course, they were the headliners at the big uh, card September 1st, 1972 at Soldier Field. Uh, and at this, around the same time they did the shows at the Expo Center, they started broadcasting and running their tape on a different station, on WRTV Channel 6, which was an NBC affiliate. And that station had a much stronger broadcasting in Indianapolis. You know, the previous station, Channel 4, WTTV, that was in Bloomington. And I remember Bobby Heenan once saying on a uh, on an interview that the no- some p- north side parts of Indy couldn't even pick up the signal. Oh. <laughs> so that was, of course, you know, they always, they had the newspaper ads. But yeah, that was a big thing. And and then again, that WRTV Channel 6 was eventually in the early 70s put on cable. So and so I I could see that show while living 50 miles up the road in Lafayette, Indiana. And of course, they ran those tapes in Fort Wayne and Elkhart and Terre Haute, uh, you know, places like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, the Blackjacks, uh, the, you know, there's a handful, a very small handful of things that when you think WWA, they're really noted for. And uh, and the, the Blackjacks are one of them, right? I mean, yeah, that Bru- was – go ahead. You know, Bruiser and Snyder put them together, and look how yeah. – you know, they left. They go to the WWF, you know, and yeah. hold those belts. But yeah. it all started – 
you know, I don't know if Bruce or sent uh, Vince Senior a tape or somebody. Yeah. But you know, you just you see some of those clips on YouTube. You could see how the crowd's into it. Yeah. You probably remember that match. It was Bruiser Crusher and Little Bruiser. Yeah. The the midget against yeah. Lance Mulligan and Heenan. And how that crowd was it's thunderous pandemonium during that. Yep. They they were dying for Little Bruiser to get his hands on uh, on Bobby. And he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. Right after shaking hands. <laughs> yeah. And Heenan tries to beat his typical smart aleck. He gets down on both knees. Yeah. <laughs> and offers the handshake little bruiser and little bruiser drop kicks him in the chest. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, the black job, I mean, they had a, you know, a dominant run there with the tag titles. I held them, you know, over for over a year there mm-hmm. uh, during the early part of this time period, because they were, like I said, they were, they were the perfect adversaries mm-hmm. uh, there for bruiser and crusher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course with Heenan and it was just a, I mean, it was, it was the epitome of, of 70s wrestling. It was yeah. just, it was perfect. And co- co- uh, coincidentally, with that arrival of the Black Jacks, in that year, Bruiser and Snyder decided to expand their territory to Olympia Stadium in Detroit, Michigan. You know, which was then controlled by the original Sheik. You know, Bruiser had a lot of, I remember his first run in Detroit starting in 1959 till around 1961. He was the main event in 38 out of 40 cards, which were controlled by Jim Barnett. And I would think he thought, you know something, maybe I I could rekindle that enthusiasm. So they decided to challenge big time wrestling and f- and go face to face for the market share in Detroit. And luckily for Bruiser at the time, his lawsuits over the Alex Kiris brawl in 1963 were settled and paid off. And the theory is, well, he couldn't wrestle up there because some lawyer would would put it an attachment on his payoff. But <laughs> yeah. see, once those lawsuits were settled, he was able to go out there. Yeah. And the original Sheik didn't just sit by and say, okay, Bruiser, good luck to you. You know, but the Sheik orig- originally, and kept doing this, he booked his cards at the Cobo Arena on the same night as Bruiser did at the Olympia. You know, this was sort of a in rival, you know, a strong rivalry. You know, the Sheik at the time was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance, and other NWA people sent in talent to boost the Kobo cards. I remember on that first card, they had uh, Gorilla Monsoon. I mean, they have, I don't remember all the, but, you know, every t- existing NWA territory sends somebody in to come to the rescue in fact it even and of course this met the attention of nwa president sam muchnick who told bruiser well Bruce dick as much as i 
admire you, I'm not going to be able to use you or your WWA people in St. Louis until you stop co-promoting you and Wilbur running against the sheep. That's going to have to stop. And it eventually did. And after about two and a half years, uh, the WWA packed their bags and went home to Indianapolis. And later, Sheik and Bruiser made up and each wrestled on each other's cards in Detroit, Chicago, Indianapolis, and Fort Wayne. So that was an interesting, that was one of the longest rival competitions in wrestling in the territory days. Yeah. And it was wild because both of them were, were drawing pretty well. They're running yeah. on the same nights. It was it was it's pretty crazy how many fans were watching wrestling in Detroit on those nights. I remember some of the Detroit photographers said something mm-hmm. to the effect, Oh, this was tough. I wanted to be see both of those cards, but I only yep. could go to one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the fans this, got caught up yeah, in it. <laughs> And this, and of course, in 1972, was the best year ever in the WWA for both attendance, rev, revenues, and profits. And a crowd of 10,000 fans at the Expo Center was standard in Indianapolis, including turnaway crowds. And there were some new interesting people that came on board a tag team called the Graduates, which were Angelo Papo and Ken Dillinger. And they were managed by Mark Manson, who was a Charles Manson lookalike. And of course he brought in, he put together the uh, team of Billy Red Cloud, who was a legitimate Native American and Chief Bobby Bold Eagle, who wasn't a legitimate Native American. <laughs> but they were, you know, a sometimes in main events in the, in the spot shows. And, of course, he had mains, Bruiser and Snyder had mainstream, mainstays in that lineup, including Bill Miller, Moose Cholak, Art Thomas, Prince Pullins, and The Crusher. And, if, you know, eventually, you know, more people came in. Pepper Gomez, Bob, Cowboy Bob Ellis, you know. I mean, he really brought in some quality people. Yeah. Experienced people that knew to drill. Yeah, there's a lot of great, a lot of great talent there. A lot of, uh, I, I mean, underappreciated talent. Bob, Bob Ellis is always one that always kills me how underappreciated he is. Yeah. And, um. I always, uh, every year, I know I know it's not the be-all, end-all, but in the Wrestling Observer newsletter, the, their Hall of Fame, I cannot believe Bob Ellis is not in there yet. And every year, I'm always trying to encourage people to vote Bob Ellis in because mm-hmm. it just it just boggles my mind. Uh, and it's talented. harder. It's harder because yeah. as the decades go by, I mean, I'm aware of wrestling fans my age, you know, that have passed away in the last five years. You've yeah. had wrestling either you've had wrestling people guests on your show that are no longer with us. Yep. Yep. And the more that happens, you know, the, yep. the less people remember cowboy Bob Ellis yep. or Pepper Gomez. Yep. All of them. Yeah. Art Thomas, all these guys. 
I mean, it's yeah, Art Thomas is in Prince Paul's all those guys. There's you don't hear those names. Yeah. Right? People don't ever mention those names. And man, they were so talented. Hey, and, Art uh, Thomas main evented uh, in New York against Buddy Rogers in the day. Yep. yep. You know. Yep. So, well, that's why that's why we do things like this. We, we're trying to trying to keep those memories a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, once the in late '92, another really big name arrived on the scene. Ernie the King Lad was brought in, an ex American Football League All Star defensive lineman. He was the self proclaimed king of wrestling. Six foot nine, over 300 pounds. And he was one of the best ex AFL converts from football to wrestling. And of course, one of Bruiser's most formidable opponents during these years was none other than Ernie Ladd. Two football greats meeting head on. You know, I, I always remember, and I used to get the biggest laugh. Ernie Ladd would go to the ring. He would step over the top rope. He was Mm -hmm. so big. And he'd have his right thumb taped with adhesive tape. And the referee, you know, at the instructions would, uh, you know, try to touch it. He'd pull back out. And then Menneker, oh, we hear that Ladd still has that football injury. (laughs) <laughs> and, and of course, you know, he would use that thumb as a weapon, you know, to hide it from the referee. It would work every time, even though no matter what town he'd go to, how many weeks into his run. And, uh, and then the other gimmick was he would tell the ring announcer, uh, I demand silence from the audience when I take off my crown. So he slowly pull, puts his hand up to the crown. The crowd goes nuts, screaming. You know, it worked. These little vaudeville or semi or comedic uh, little gags worked real good back in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were, you know, they, these guys knew how to work the crowd, how to get the heat, how to milk it. Yeah. And of course, he was. Uh, a tag partner with Baron Von Raschke, managed by Heenan. In fact, there's an amazing YouTube clip from August 1973. They only show two, the first two falls of a tag match where, okay, it's Baron and Ladd, managed by Heenan, against Bruiser and Bruno San Martino. The referee is Sam Meneker. And the ring announcer, Tom Mathis, who was an Indianapolis DJ, actually calls the match. You know, that was that to me, that was the only time Sam Menneker didn't call the match. But, yeah, he was refereeing at the time. Yeah. And you just see how the the, like said, the thunderous booze, you know, he didn't, uh, you know, steps to the center of the ring when his name is mentioned, throws both arms in the air. <laughs> Those were the days, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he of was course, a heat, heat magnet. <laughs> yeah, and of course, hey, Lad 
was big in the L.A. territory, in Houston, in Georgia, in the Carolinas, at the WWE. He was in Detroit. You know, he he wrestled just about every territory. Yeah. And yeah. he all right. Another way he used to work the crowd. There is the clipping from Georgia Championship Wrestling. Him and Jay Strongbow, where he destroyed Jay Strongbow's Indian regalia. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ernie was around for a long time. He told us, I mean, his, I think his knees just kind of gave out, and he yeah, really, really couldn't anymore. But he even, I mean, I know he even booked a few places and everything yeah. else. He was a, he had a good mind. Yeah, he did. And of course, you know, I'm sure the because Indianapolis, that territory. Brewster could only really give him good payoffs in Chicago or Indianapolis, maybe a halfway decent in Fort Wayne. It wasn't. In fact, he didn't work the spot shows. He just he they just used them for the big shows. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, that was a yeah, that was a significant contribution when he when he came to the WWA. I thought for sure. Yeah, and and around the same year in '73, the famous team of the Valiant Brothers were put together, and and of course, handsome Jimmy arrived a few years earlier as James Valen, a muscular baby face. You know, he grew up in the in the Northwest Indiana. And was very aware of Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder. And Handsome Jimmy eventually turned heel and became a regular WWA villain managed by Heenan. He used to have these speckled jackets. You know, I remember one on the back that said, I am a star. <laughs> and, uh, and then... There, Talk about fate or when you cross paths with someone unexpectedly. In 1973, Heenan, Barron, and Valiant were in Ontario working a spot show. And Heenan saw a muscular blonde wrestler on the card named John L. Sullivan who was a protege of Bruno Sammartino. And I I think it was Heenan and Valiant had the idea, hey, Sullivan can become a Valiant brother. Mm -hmm. And he became luscious Johnny Valiant. So the team was born. And they wore those colorful jackets and funny trunks. They used this gimmick in the ring which has been called pull the switch let's say uh valiant is covering and jimmy is covering an opponent and the referee's back is turned and jimmy's been in the ring for five minutes then they they switch places real quick without tagging off and they look similar blonde hair the same trunks and they would win a lot of matches doing that rotation routine and of course it ends with them winning and the baby faces arguing with the referee it worked every time and of course they 
they were, became WWA tag team title holders uh, from uh, taking them from Gomez and Snyder. And then they feuded with Bruiser and Bruno. And this was the time between when Bruce, Bruno, between his two stints as WWWF heavyweight championship, which is probably good for him for him to do this because he would only maybe work at the most two times a week, you know, either Chicago, Indianapolis, or Fort Wayne. And Detroit, that's the, this is still, they were still running Detroit at the time, you know, as opposed to the days when, when he was doing five and six nights a week in that Northwest corridor, you know, all those cities like Boston, Hartford, New York, Albany, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, you know, all that. So that, that was a nice time for him, I'm sure. Getting yeah. a br- break from the stress. And, of course, the Valiants con- continued. Eventually, they lost the WWA titles. Uh, and, of course, they went on to be, just like the Blackjacks, WWWF heavyweight title holders. And, of course, they went to the San Francisco Territory, ran up, ran it by storm, they were into the AWA. They went to Georgia, and they even came back to the WWA. We'll cut, talk a bit that later, maybe 1977-ish, under the management of Major Duke George. Yeah. You know, but you know what I, I just described to you was the best lineup and the b- biggest heat, and most exciting feud and I tell you those were those are the days for the WWA you know on the next the next thing the next uh, program we'll be getting into uh, the people that tried to fill that vacuum left by the departures of the blackjacks and Ernie Ladd and the Valiant Brothers, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll learn about Ox Baker and the Legionnaires and Handsome Johnny Starr. Oh, yeah. of course, when we hit, start the next chapter, one of the big, big blows to the WWA will be the departure of Bobby Heenan. Yep, yep. You know? yeah, I was going to say that, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. that was... Yeah, when you uh, yeah. speaking of yeah, when you mentioned Johnny Starr, that was the yeah. he was the guy that that tried to fill the shoes, and uh, you know it's a little unfair because Johnny Starr is a talent is a talented guy in his own right. Oh yeah, but you're you're try you're Bruiser, you're trying to com- replace someone that's universally recognized as the greatest performer in and out of the ring in the history of the industry. Yeah. No. In. Absolutely. Raymond Lewis Heenan. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Like you said. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go, it's okay. No, I'm just going to mention you know the, on the Valiants again. You know, we talked earlier about the Blackjacks being probably the what I would you know, what we call the greatest, probably the greatest creation in the mm-hmm. WWA. But I, I put the Valiants right, slot them right in at number two oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, two. in my eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. That's why I think it's it's often unheralded 
the impact the WWE had. I mean, when you have, you know, the creation of the Blackjacks, the creation of the Valiants, uh, some of these other guys that, you know, got got time to to shine and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be and a little two, more credit there. And two exceptional contributions of the WWE is they they're they are the ones that gave Bobby Heenan his first manager job, yep. which he which he held for a good six and a half to seven years off and on during that time. And also later later in the story, they will hire David McLean, mm-hmm. who up to that time was a ringside photographer. I yep. remember buying pictures from him <laughs> at, uh, at the Hammond Civic Center. He had, you know, a notebook with pl- plastic sleeves and pictures. Yep. And it was amazing, you know. And then, to my surprise, you know, five years later, he's co- he's filling in and replacing Sam Menneker. Yep. And and he's had, let's see, that was. He started in the late 80s. I think his first of, I count them, four women wrestling shows or promotions. Yep. Yeah, he's got they got one now, I think. Women of Wrestling, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Something like that. He's got one currently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a, you know, a lot going on there. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot to talk about still coming up in the future. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like you said, these are these are kind of the peak years. They're still, they're, I mean, they're still... As we get to the mid and late, so there's still some really good years left, and then then it starts to it starts to decline. Yeah. And uh and then the 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 eighties are a little rough time, uh, but uh you know but the, the, you know I, again yes there I I do believe there's a little accountability on Bruiser with that a little bit, but it was also just a reflection of the time right the territories were drying up and dying, mm-hmm. and uh you know between cable TV and and Vince McMahon and every all kinds of other things and yeah. It, it and was that, just a product of the time. In the early 80s, all right, I was back in Chicago now, but the Indianapolis wrestling program was still shown on Channel 44. But I might cable every Saturday night at 11 p.m. The WWF TV from originating from Secaucus, New Jersey, ran on television in Chicago. Yep. And then also... Saturday afternoon, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Yep. You know, and they had the feud between Tommy Wildfire Rich and Buzz Sawyer. They yep. had feud of the Freebirds against the Junkyard Dog and Ted DiBiase. Yep. And the WW, they were WWF by then. You know, Backlund was the champion, you know, with all, feuding with. Morocco and Valentine and Orton. Yep. All all these pe you know, all these people, Mosca. It was and then and, and then okay. It just it, they they looked just so those two promotions were just so much more lively, interesting interesting and uh realist yeah. than the WWA. Yeah, I, I, I hate to say that, but yeah, 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 we'll dive more into that then when we get later into that time. But uh, yeah, that's true. But, mm-hmm. but like we said, we still got, you know, the next installment. There, there's still a few more really good prime years. 
to talk sure. about a lot of a lot of good talent to come around. I mean, yeah, people don't yeah. know people people very much forget the WWA was was powerful in the seventies. They yes. were they were right up there as you know often being considered in the, the top three or four promotions in the country, mm-hmm. and, and and hands down, I mean they were like you said drawing you know drawing ten thousand a show. And and you know, everything else, they were they were a great great promotion through the seventies. Right. So sounds good. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Richard, for coming on. Uh, well, before we you. before we let you go for this installment, why don't you mention it earlier? But why don't you uh, once again plug your book? Because anybody that's interested, okay. particularly in just wrestling history in general, but particularly WWA and Midwest wrestling, uh, will, will want to check out your book if they haven't already. Yes. It's Bruiser, the mo- the world's most dangerous wrestler. Published by Crowbar Press. A Kindle version of this book is available on Amazon. There you go. If you if you don't want a paper book. Yeah. And you know I'm always I'm there's another project in the works uh, you know that's being reviewed by a publisher and maybe down the line I could talk talk on your show about that. Yeah, that'd be exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. So yeah, yeah, we'll keep in touch with that. uh, like I said, I'll, I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to grab that book. A, a link to the Crowbar Press page for it. And uh, like I said, I, I advise everybody. Yeah, I mean, you don't even have to be necessarily a WWE fan. Just I mean, Dick the Bruiser was one of the biggest personalities in wrestling history. Period. So uh, there's something to enjoy there for everybody who likes <laughs> wrestling. So, but uh, all right, Richard, thanks for joining us for this one, and uh, we'll have you back on in the near future to, to continue so much, on. Dave. Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at the WFIA.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA1969. All right, and welcome back to Wrestling Nostalgia. I am Dave Dynasty. Uh, thank you to Richard Vicek for coming on and discussing the history of the WWA from 1970 1973. Uh, like I said earlier, watch future episodes where we continue on that talk through the history of the promotion. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform that you use. And if the option is there to give us a rating and review, please do that because that helps us in those algorithms that uh, where people are listening to other wrestling podcasts and we come up as a suggested listen. Uh, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on X, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Just look up Russell Nostalgia, and you can find me personally on X at the Dave Dynasty. And probably the best way that you can support the show is to buy a shirt. We have several out there. Go to ProWrestlingTees.com slash the Dave Dynasty and purchase one today. Uh, Thank you again for joining me. Thank you for all your support, all your feedback online, on social media, all the uh, all the networking and sharing and and everything that you guys give me. I I really do appreciate it. Uh, We you know, we continue to grow and it's that's a good thing, right? Because we're we're putting a spotlight on some history of some promotions and some guys that maybe don't get enough. And I'm happy that it's 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 working right. People are out there and liking it and enjoying it. So thank you for that. We'll have another episode in two weeks. And until then, wherever you go and whatever you do, be good, be safe, and keep on growing.